the enemy is upon us. It's time to dig in, to stand our ground, and watch for the next attack. You're in the Fox with Jason Parker. Hey, good evening, everybody, and it is Thursday, July 13th, 2023. I am your host, Jason Barker. You're in the foxhole, of course, and tonight we have a very special guest. Uh, I don't know what you got on your screen there, but it's John Kleis. How do you say it? Kleisic? Kleisic, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Kleisic, okay. And uh, you're an author of a pretty awesome book called School World Order, The Technocratic Globalization of Corporatized Education. Sir, how are you doing today? Doing great, sir. Thank you for having me. Okay. Well, um, I, I got the chance to hang out with this guy on uh, Jonas' podcast, uh, what, about a week or two ago or something like that? Something like that, yeah. Yeah, and it was it was a late night one, and uh, you know, we're a little peppier now because it's not so late. Uh, so I had to pick his brain, and he decided that he would agree to come on and, and uh, discuss his book, which I find fascinating. Um, I haven't read the whole thing. I'll be honest with you. Disclaimer up front. I've just got delved into it. I was kind of blown away by the editor's notes, though. Uh, and I don't know if you've read those in your own book, the editor's notes. Uh, he um, notes, citations at the end. No, I'm talking about the very beginning. Uh, he oh. talks about he had uh, uh, both sides, mom and dad side of the family and stuff like that, had educators in their in their, um, you know, throughout their their genealogy and stuff like that or their you know parents and stuff like that and uh he was kind of blown away by reading you know doing the editing part you have to read the thing probably multiple times and well, yeah, uh, yeah yeah that was that's yeah the public that's the publisher's note um yeah, the publisher's notes that's what yeah I mean, yeah, yeah. So, you know because yeah, the, the editor was um oh kelly ray i think I, it's been so long as i only talked to him during the editing process i think it's Name's Kelly uh, is in there, but I think it's his last name is Ray. But yeah, the the publisher Chris Milligan, uh, he actually has uh, sort of an interesting connection to the to the history that is in the book, which is uh, the Order of Skull and Bones, because he's the guy that rescued yeah. Anthony Sutton's manuscript uh, from sort of the dustbin of history and re republished it. So yeah, he's got a very interesting story himself. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Maybe maybe he'll come on sometime, uh, you know, and talk about that. But um, anyway, let's uh, talk about you first. Uh, tell us your background, who you are, where you come from, uh, stuff like that. I know you're a professor of uh, multiple things. So go ahead and let us know who you are. So uh, as you mentioned, John Kleisink, uh, what you see there is uh, it says Dallas professor. That's sort of my uh, moniker that I use on my Twitter handle. Uh, I've been teaching rhetoric and research argumentation for over a decade now. Uh, I got to update the website. I think the website still says eight years um, and teach interdisciplinary studies. Uh, as of late, I've, I uh, got myself a course in interdisciplinary studies, which, you know, rhetoric itself is, is very much an interdisciplinary uh, uh, discipline in, it, in itself. Um, and I started writing the book. It started off as a series of articles, um, you know, that were based largely on uh, this big book here, which is Charlotte Thompson Israby's deliberate dumbing down of America. Here's the uh, the abridged version there. Um, and I at a, at a particular time in uh, oh, this is right before Trump uh, got in, about a year or so before, and the 
governor in Illinois, where I teach, uh, was basically uh, stalling on the budget. And uh, what happens uh, if, if the governor doesn't pass the budget is that, right, the state funds don't get released, but you also don't have access to federal funds. And so what this uh, kicked off was uh, sort of a, a, the impetus for privatization, pushing public uh, education and other public institutions into private receivership. So uh, at the time, I'd heard a bunch of buzzwords about um, that, that Charlotte talked about in her book. So those being uh, the whole public-private partnerships through the school choice movement, uh, replacing academics with workforce training, and then uh, all things ed tech. And uh, the governor himself was a big proponent of all these things, charter schools in particular. There's a rounder college prep out of the Noble Network of Charter Schools in Chicago. Uh, at his state of the state addresses, he frequently promoted uh, cradle to career education, which is just another euphemism for school uh, school to work or the replacement of academics with workforce training. So I, uh, one of my departments at the time basically got shut down because we couldn't get the funds. Um, and so at that point, I sort of wrote an article about this, uh, sort of updating uh, some of the things that Charlotte had warned about. Article series turned into uh, some of the first chapters in the book. Um, and throughout that process, I ended up coming in contact with Charlotte and, as I mentioned, the publisher, Chris Milligan. Um, and, um, you know, so here we are today. All right. Well, um, that's interesting that uh, you're in Illinois because I'm actually from Illinois. I was born there and raised there for most of my younger, you know, before my preteen. Yeah, until about 16, I guess I was in Illinois. And um, I don't even know who the governor is right now. But I can tell you the school system is not that great there. Um, it is, uh, I mean, we did, when I was a kid, we had social studies and we had uh, government geography. And those two particular classes, I, I seem to remember, were they were indoctrination, um, especially the uh, government geography. Uh, they had me thinking that communism was a great thing when I was about, you know, 14, uh, 13, 14 years old. I thought communism was great. They made it sound wonderful. Uh, you had all these uh, chapters and stuff of, uh, you know, Marxism, communism, all this stuff. And then when it when it talked about us, it was like literally like one paragraph. You know, all they taught us to learn about our own history, about, um, you know, our experiment here in self-governance was like just learn the dates and the names and you'll pass the test. And, th and that's basically all we learned. But everything else, they really talked about it, really talked about it. And, and I guess uh, my question there is you being an educator because you're a professor. Um, what's your take on like, do you, I know you don't subscribe to it because you wrote a book, but what's it like working in that environment where it seems like the mentality, especially in that particular state, if you were teaching there, um, what's it like when the other professors and stuff or other teachers are kind of like really pushing that mentality and you kind of don't think that way? Is that kind of, weird work in there or yeah i mean i sort of had a circuitous uh development as an academic uh and so you know uh, you know in, in in early school you know all the way through you know middle school high school uh i don't think anybody would have even thought that i, I was going to ever go to college let alone teach it i was just kind of a troublemaker and um you know, I, I was, I was, they always said I was, you know, bright or whatever, but I just used whatever cognitive abilities I had to sort of cut corners and like, you know, get the bare minimum so that I could pass and not get in trouble at home. Um, but uh, I took a little, little bit of time off in between, you know, high school and college. 
And so when I got to college, you know, I had a little stint of doing a lot of manual labor and was kind of like, yeah, you know, maybe I should go this, uh, go, go the white collar route as much as possible. Um, and so, you know, I just was kind of for mo for much of my, uh, uh, education in terms of college, you know, I just pretty much, you know, was, was trying to, uh, get good grades, which pretty much means regurgitate the lecture, right? It's not that hard to yeah. get to get A's. It's just repeat the the theories and the and the, the buzzwords that they toss out in the lectures. Uh, and you know, if you can put them together in a cohesive manner in a in a paper that meets the minimum requirements, you know, you're you're pretty much set to go. And I wasn't a person that was very um um you know aware of geopolitics or even you know our own uh history of government self-governance. Um and uh, I was kind of like you at a certain point, you know, this was like down during the Bush era uh, where I was like, you know, very much not happy with all things Iraq war. Um, and, you know, you get you get uh, especially in literary theory, which was, you know, my, my degree is technically in English literary studies. But uh, when I did my my assistantship, I was trained in rhetoric uh, because one of the things which you get when you get your graduate assistantship is you have to teach. So, you know, you have to teach composition. And composition hopefully should have some rhetoric in it uh although when you get it from you know the sort of the the postmoderns, it's, it's rhetoric is like there's feminist rhetoric there's marxist rhetoric there's freudian rhetoric there's critical rhetoric there's queer rhetoric right there's all these different these different lenses that you that you put your rhetoric through uh it's not the traditional ethos logos pathos you know that comes out of the, the classical greek uh, uh the, the trivium right um but uh, at the time, you know, they would have a lot of Marxist stuff. And, uh, you know, at first I was kind of like, why, why would I want to read the, this novel through the lens of like this like communist dictator guy? Because I didn't know much about it. I just knew that Marxism and communism went together. But you kind of look around and you see like, oh, you know, the, the way they feed it to you is like these guys were the ones that were against like all things capitalism that, you know, that the Bush administration sort of. I guess on the surface represented. So I was like, oh, I'm kind of like, I'm kind of like, uh, you know, I'm against this. And these other, these, these Marxists are against that. So I, you know, I kind of leaned into that. Uh, but around the, the Obama years, uh, you know, when, when he was basically doing all the same things in terms of foreign policy, and I would start to mention this, right. Uh, you know, in, in class discussions, cause this is not at this point, I'm about in grad, I'm in grad school now. And, um, it, it, it was it was bizarre to me that everybody that was against Bush supported this guy who did the same thing, but only because he had this right, this left wing or pseudo socialist kind of veneer about him. Um, and it was at that point that I kind of started looking into more libertarian stuff. And some friends of mine, you know, were, I guess, out in, you know, conspiracy world. Right. It was sharing me some of these, you know, alt media kind of cons conspiratorial stuff. And a lot of it, you know, I was just incredulous because it was like, I've been in academia forever here uh, and I did well enough. I mean, again, you know, I mean, I wouldn't consider myself a, you know, necessarily a scholar at that time. Again, I was just kind of, I was doing a lot of martial arts and just trying to, you know, get decent grades. Uh, but I figured that I would come across some of these things, right? Like I, I, I couldn't imagine I could get through four years and almost finish my, uh, well, at the time that I first started popping up, I was my senior year, uh, an undergrad. And, you know, this is, I would say this is kind of embarrassing to note, but I, you know, uh, I didn't know what eugenics was. Um, and, you know, you hear, you know, as much as you get the Marxist stuff, you know, the class, you also get, 
race and gender and sexuality, but there was all a lot of, you know, the critical race theory stuff that is so, you know, out in the open now. I mean, that was always embedded in there, uh, you know, at least certainly during during my time frame uh, in, in college. Um, and I just was like, well, how, how could I have gotten through this and heard all all things anti-racist, but not anything about eugenics? And so um, that kind of got me looking more into, you know, the, the Quigleys and the Suttons and people like that. Um, and today, you know, when I, when I finally started writing about it, uh, you know, I'm an adjunct. So I, I don't know if, you're, if your audience isn't familiar, but what that means is I'm not tenure track. So I get hired per course, per semester, right? I don't have an office, right? I don't have benefits. So basically, as long as the, I, I, I really fly under the radar, right? Like they, as long as the, the, the students are happy, nobody's complaining, they, they don't pay a whole lot of attention to me. So okay, I was going to ask you about that too, about the, uh, you know, if you were worried about getting the boot or not. You know, I, I was for the longest time, you know, I mean, like, even like when I first wrote my, um, you know, first syllabus I wrote, you know, I teach when I teach uh, English 102 uh, research methods, I pair they So they have to do uh, their own research arguments. Um, but we use Brave New World as sort of a launch pad to like explore topics that they can write okay. about research. Right. And uh, it's nice because it gives you some history into a lot of the stuff that's just now coming to fruition. Right. I mean, just the, the bioengineering, the, the, the psychological engineering um, in particular. And, um, so, so, uh, when I would, you know, I would put these themes in there and like, you know, I borrowed a lot of the themes. I mean, are they sort of all this other research that I just mentioned, the eugenics and sort of this, you know, this quick Quigley's theories about globalization and things like that are sort of embedded in there, right? It's not explicit. Uh, but I thought that when they, when they saw the syllabus alone, they would be like, you know, that they would see each topic. And then when you put the topics together, Right. You have like a, you know, you have like a tapestry of a, a sort of a worldview or a framework from which to sort of, you know, where all this stuff connects and never popped up then. Um, then when I wrote the, the articles at first, I thought, you know, somebody might see it. Never. They never saw it. Then I wrote the book, thought somebody might see it. Never happened. I gave it to a couple of people that I was uh, friendly with and um, didn't 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 uh, didn't say anything, you know, either way about it. Um, then when I started doing interviews and I really thought like, okay, now my face yeah. is out here and it just never happened. I, I either, either they're totally unaware of it. Like that's like, that's the, t that's how much of a bubble they're sort of in or they are aware about it and don't care, but one way or another, well, maybe, yeah. maybe, and I would argue this point, maybe a lot of people and this coming from the military, you know, with the COVID stuff and everything and the jab, um, I happen to know that the majority of the people don't agree with it. They don't believe in the whole COVID narrative. Um, they don't believe in the jab. They just did it. And, you know, they all put each other in check because they're told to. And that kind of goes to the point of your book. You talk about um, conditioning, you know, uh, positive, negative operant conditioning and things like that. And how to how to shape uh, socially shape uh, people's behaviors. And I really want to get into that. Um, but, but back to what I was saying with the military, you know, I, I did get a lot of pushback from some people, but it was more of a resentment because they resented that they didn't do it. That's kind of the feel I got. But I think a lot of people kind of like were secretly rooting for me, you know, and, and I, I kind of could see that maybe 
in your line of work where it appears that everybody's super liberal and they're on with this woke agenda. Maybe they're not. Maybe they're doing that for job security. And uh, maybe secretly they're like, okay, I know what you're doing. You need to keep doing it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I actually, I've got a, you know, I got an interesting story about it. So the closest I came, and at this point I can't imagine that, that it'll ever come because so when the CARES Act was came out, right, mm-hmm. and they handed out all those funds, and there was the other one, Gears and Heerts and all that, uh, um, there was a committee, right? And so you know, you got this big lump of money, and then there was a committee that had to decide how to spend it, right? So they had to come up with proposals, and there was three main categories. One was PPE. The other one was uh, technologies to facilitate the distance learning. There's a third category that I can't remember. Uh, I can't I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, but as an adjunct, I was able to sort of wiggle my way into being the adjunct representative at one of the colleges where I adjunct. Um, and so what the, the task force or the subcommittee that I was on was looking at uh, the proposals for the education technologies. And, you know, I'll cut to the chase, which is that, you know, uh, I was, I was very, uh, very much, you know, a lot of the proposals came in, they were very vague. You know, it was just like for dental tech, we need a simulator. That's like, okay. But like they didn't specify like the product, the company, you know, and I'm like, do we have anything specific on this? Like, can we like, how about the privacy policy, the data policy, right? Things like that. Um, and, um, you know, so I, I would say either no or needs more information. Eventually, uh, I shared with them, um, you know, I, I, I sort of laid it all out. I, you know, I, I said, you know, these all these little things that we're putting in place are going to come together in this larger grid. And I, <laughs> I, I played a video that's uh, you can find it. It's a Wall Street Journal piece. Uh, that showcases basically the the social credit system and how it integrates with uh, the ed tech system in China, and the 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 comment was uh, uh, the the only comment was well we live in a, privacy doesn't exist in in this in the world that we live in now. But when I came into the school, okay, because I hadn't been in right, so we were in lockdown. I came in, I think it was for union negotiations at some point, and I walk in and there's you had to go through security, right? And security's there and they're real police officers. They're not just security there. They have like, I don't know, double duty. So they, you know, some of them have like the beat there on the campus, but you know, you'll see them around the the, the, uh, the, the municipality as well, right? They'll, they'll have the beat on the, on the block and stuff. Uh, and one of them says, uh, Oh, if it isn't our favorite right-wing extremist uh, professor, and I was like, "Whoa!" I was like, "Oh, am I that right-wing?" I was like, "I didn't think I was that." I mean, I guess maybe I just kind of, you know, laughed it off or chuckled or whatever. And he's the he's the chief of police, and uh, and then uh, later on, uh, when I was walking, you know, there's because there's a couple of them, I, and it came back through, and the one guy winked at me. So I don't know if that was like, <laughs> I mean, I don't know if that was a, a you know, if that was a jab at me or that was like a secret way to like like you said like you know kind of like oh you know yeah you know police tend to be right of center right i mean just you know dem- demographically mm-hmm. if you're if you're just statistically look at them they tend to right be leaning that way and i you know they they've known me and stuff like that so i don't know i don't know but nothing ever you know nobody ever still teaching you know so all right well hey um I kind of want to get into like into the meat of the book. I mean, don't give it away, of course, but uh, I'll, I'll go back. I'll, I'll start with what I know about uh, or what I 
perceive to know about education. And uh, I've never really studied this. However, I had a mandatory elective I had to take when I was um, going through school. And it happened to be art history classes, the one I chose, which I actually got a lot out of it. I didn't think I would get much out of it. Um, but the geopolitics of the day and, and to see the progression is pretty amazing. If, if you're into, um, you know, looking at what's going on around you, there's a lot of correlation, a lot of similarities. You can see where a lot of things were born out of um, through history. And, and now what I noticed um, was that, you know, we didn't have a formal education system back in the day and everything was okay. We had like an artisan kind of type of, you know, uh, what do you call it, the journeymanship kind of thing where if you want to be a blacksmith, you know, the dad would send you off to hang out with the blacksmith and you would do little errands for him or whatever and uh, go draw buckets of water or do whatever. You earn your little bit of money and then you learn to blacksmith. And, you know, at some point, uh, and I think it probably started, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but when Martin Luther started his church, because um, back then reading was really the only education you needed to be smart was to read because then from there you can go on and do do whatever you can go study elsewhere and and there was a uh, during the art period when they were building these big cathedrals and they were competing with one another over who has the better cathedral because that's how they made their money right uh they were sending these these artists off to go learn from other other countries to to learn to craft in different ways and different art styles and and they they learned some different theology than what the church was teaching and they would put that in the stained glass and the and the paint and they told their own story um <clears throat> so anyway that's what people could learn from that art they can like as the the preacher or priest or whoever it was was telling the story as per their interpretation of whatever their scripture they're reading you know people could look at the pictures and they maybe got a little bit different story so that was the first way of like kind of educating people was through pictures and things like that and then martin luther started his church and said people don't need to uh get this from another person you could read it yourself and and that kind of started the whole education thing and that was good um and i think that that's today we should still be doing that we should be learning reading writing and arithmetic but where did it go awry where did it go to the point where we're learning uh not the basics about learning how to learn because that's what we should be doing is learning how to learn not learning what to think uh, i guess i'll leave it at that and let you run with it from there correct me if i'm wrong on any of my assumptions from the past well so i think one of the things that you're highlighting here is sort of two two tracks in education that have sort of been kind of uh, galvanized into a monolith today and, and that would have been the academic or scholastic route versus the vocational or as you put it right the artisanal or, yeah. the, or the apprentice route right and so so one was basically right you're learning a, a craft Right. For uh, whether it be, you know, like I said, blacksmithing, or, uh, you know, tanning or right. You know, um, seamstress stuff, uh, you know, um, you know, masonry, et cetera, carpentry. Right. Some 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 hard skill. Right. Um, now, Masons and, uh, had to be extremely educated, though. They had to be able to read and do math. Um, they, they were considered magicians back in the day because they could make things uh there, there's a cool documentary i've seen on masons how they were considered to be like that that's where the whole masonic thing comes from to this day but yeah well so someone like albert mackey would say that and it's, it's interesting because so, okay so here you have history of freemasonry by albert mackey and morals mm -hmm. and dogma by um 
uh, Albert Pike, right? And they're both actually from the same lodge, and they're both highly ranked. They might be equally ranked. One might be a little bit higher than the other. They have totally different theories about uh, hmm. sort of the history of what they call operative masonry versus speculative masonry. Operative masonry had everything to do with the craft of right laying stone, right stonework in terms of architecture. And the speculative masonry had to do with uh, basically the Rosicrucian influences that all the sort of the theurgy and and right some of the uh, the esoteric rites that are embedded in you know all the the, the symbolism of you know the, the black and white the dualistic tiles and uh, all the references to Cain and, and stuff like that. Um, so uh, so you're right. I, I, I would you know from from if you go with what Mackie says, a lot of the some of the more learned stuff that they would have had to go through in terms of like, you know, they had to learn trivium, quadrivium stuff that was a, is a key part of uh, a Masonic education would have, would have probably been more in line uh, associated with the speculative part as opposed to the, um, to the operative part. Um, but, you know, to go back to the, these two tracks in terms of the, the scholastic or the academic, right. I mean, the, the term academy, right. That was, that was Plato's school. Right. And so this largely had to do with, schools of philosophy, which basically had three, you know, there's, there's three broad categories of philosophy. One is ontology. It's the study of being or ultimate reality. And then you had, um, axiology, which is the study of ethics and then epistemology, which is like, how do we know what we know? And then with, within that, you know, later on, you would have had schools like under Plotinus where they, you know, you would try to integrate the, the trivium and the quadrivium. So those are the seven classical liberal arts, um, so trivium is grammar, logic, rhetoric, quadrivium is uh, arithmetic, geometry, music, astronomy. Okay. And all this stuff would sort of be in this, all of this would come together and would uh, uh, sort of get passed down through what would become the university system, you know, starting with like Oxford and the, and the Royal, Royal College and, and, and stuff like that. Uh, but, you know, all along this time period, those, you know, the, um, you basically still had a guild uh, system of of educating for the purposes of, um, you know, to developing crafts and skills and and you okay, know, yeah. And and prior to that, though, you know, I mean, like a lot of that, you know, even before the guild system would have just sort of been ingrained in your culture. Like, in other words, right? Like, if you're an agrarian society, you know, and you're working on a particular plot of land, right? I mean, it's just going to be you're not just going to you're going to have to learn about the native foliage, right. And the soil and things like that in, in a way that is right. Immediately necessary for survival. And that would have been passed down orally and through, you know, folk tradition and, and whatnot, you know, from, from family to family, but it's as, as far as institutions go, right. You had this scholastic route and this, this vocational route. And then around, I would say th through the process of the industrial revolution, right. Through the development of, right steam engine combustion engine right mechanization assembly line all this type of stuff what it basically does is it, it creates a, a scenario in which the guild system in many ways and the and the folk systems become more or less obsolete especially when you consider right when you start to scale industries right on a national scale and then an international scale right which you what happens is right now we need to galvanize this workforce uh, into into basically a, a, you know a cog in this larger uh, planned economy, and so 
it's 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 with the rise of the industrial revolution that you know in the wake of that you you get some of the early foundations uh so rockefeller's first foundations tax exempt foundation was the general education board and there's a quote in there from frederick t gates who was the the head of it um and it's, i'm going to paraphrase this but it's it's pretty pretty close and it, it quotes in my book uh but he says something to the effect of we are we don't need any more lawyers or philosophers etc right what we need is for the people to to do what they're doing uh on the uh, in their what the, the phrase he uses is something like to do it to perfect uh what they already do in their simplistic ways and what he meant by that was perfecting their their jobs right like their their lever pulling and their button pushing and their sweeping and things like that but right no longer you know manual labor uh you know that we need to basically train these people to operate the factories is, is the simplest way to put it. And, and that's kind of where I wanted to go with it was, you know, uh, we, we talked about, um, and I think you summed up well, the, the branch off of, you know, the artisanship versus the, the higher learned, you know, or I would say, I would call it arts, you know, um, whether it be philosophy or art or, um, you know, architect, architecture is actually an art, believe it or not. Um, but now then you, you talk about after the industrial revolution, all of a sudden they, they changed the education system to, to like kind of curtail towards making what, like a drone kind of a worker class. Cause what they don't need more creative people, right? We need more, more bodies to produce things. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, so basically two, uh, two main uh, premises. And then one of them, I guess you could sort of divide into uh, a subcategory. So, so that is right. Um, the cultivation of a compliant citizenry. Okay. And also the cultivation of a workforce, but that also entails the cultivation of a, of a consumer class as well. Right. So, so you actually, what you get is not just right. Specialized training largely for the, uh, factory work but what you also get is sort of a the push towards compulsory education and a push towards literacy but it's but it's very much so a, a limited form of literacy right and so mm -hmm. uh, horace man you know he brings the prussian system over here and uh what one of the first things that sort of gets uh, uh pushed into the uh publicly funded schools is a is a is a modification of the early uh, methods of uh, reading pedagogy, right? So instead of right classical grammar and phonics, they change it to something called the look-say method, or what's now today known as whole word or whole language learning. So instead of learning uh, roots, suffixes, and prefixes, so that you can right sound out a word, and even if you've never read it before, if you can identify right at least its root or perhaps a prefix or a suffix, uh, and you can understand it within the context of the sentence right you can actually infer yeah. what a word means without ever having encountered it before right versus the whole language or look same method is it's basically it's a pedagogy that treats um the phonics of english grammar uh basically like a pictogram right or an ideogram which is basically like the characters that you'd see in the east so largely like right your mandarin chinese your your uh, uh your japanese right your kanji um and and so it's it's basically 
and there's there's theories to, to this day people still argue about right whether or not uh, which method is is better and does a combination work but uh demonstrably like uh one of the things that we've had a problem with is is our literacy rates right and they say that basically is uh, if you don't if you don't pick it up right if you're not up to speed by about i think fourth grade fourth or fifth grade that you're that pretty much indicates the rest of the trajectory of, of your academics. But, you know, what this look-say method did was basically hamstrings the ability to be literate, but not illiterate, but it, it just makes it so that you're literate enough to where you can follow instructions, where you can read advertisements, right, where you can be propagandized, uh, but not literate enough where you can actually point out the fallacies in the propaganda or identify the contradictions in the, in the, uh, the premises of the instruction, right, or might be somehow conscious or aware of, of how the, the workforce instructions or the propaganda doesn't align with your own self-interest, right? And so, um, so, so that's that. So that literacy was necessary to build that workforce in that consumer class, and so you actually sort of get right the merger of those two tracks that we talked about, right? More the more academic, scholastic, like right, right, reading, grammar, logic, rhetoric, etc. Right, we sort of dumb that down, uh, and then we suit it for the development of a of a planned economy, uh, in a in a you know a planned uh, society. Yeah. Oh yeah, and and I guess that that leads me to the question of, uh, and I think I, I had asked you this on Yona's show, was, um, are we just doing it wrong? You know, are we just educating wrong? And and you could talk about the the conditioning as well. By the way, you know the way we we use. Uh, scientifically, like Pavlov's dog kind of um, tactics to to teach children and and to adults now too with the with the jab, you know, the carrot and the stick method and everything. But uh, getting back to what I was asking was, are we just doing it wrong, or do you think that there is an actual intent? Is there somebody pulling a string somewhere saying, and you're kind of hinted to it already that we needed a certain class of worker that could maybe read the instruction manual. Maybe they could read how to unjam this machine that does that makes this widget, but not smart enough to figure out how the machine works so they could build their own and start their own company. You know, um, so what, what's your take on that? Is, is it by design or is it just laziness and accident? I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I mean, I, I, I could go on and on about how, you know, based on my research, I conclude that it is by design. Um, but you know, we didn't, you you should be able to sort of infer, not you, but the, the the common person should be able to infer that there is no other industry, whether commercial or nonprofit, or or any other institution, and that would continually do the same thing and get the same results, which are not good results, over and right. over and over again. Right? At some point, you would go, "What we're doing is not working." Right. We need to do something differently. But the entire history of education tends to be uh, new policy causes problems. Use those problems to further the policy. Right. So we need more of the same thing now. Right. Well, if we just did it a little bit more. Right. If we had some more conditioning. Right. Or if we had, you know, less grammar, which, by the way, that's they, you know, um, when just a generation ago, I talked to people that went to the high school that I went to. Right. They still had Latin and Greek there. They didn't have Latin and Greek. Right. When I was there and we certainly 
today, you know, when I, so I also teach, uh, so I largely teach English 101, 102, which is gen ed. So it's college, college level. Uh, but a lot of people that go to community college are not ready for college level English. So they have to, you have to teach them what's called uh, developmental courses. Okay. And developmental courses, there's usually a 99 and a 98 and uh, they're slowly phasing out the 98s. Uh, I don't think I've taught a 98 in a long time and they, they almost never offer them. And I've talked to people that run those parts because the developmental ed education is usually like a sort of a, a satellite or a separate part of the English department. Um, and something has to do with, you know, how it's incentivized in terms of will the state fund it anymore? But but um, um, what I'm getting at here is that, uh, you know, they come unprepared and if you and they discourage you from teaching grammar. Right. Like to get them up to speed. Don't do that. Don't 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 teach them how to diagram a sentence. Don't teach them, you know, uh, basic phonics. Don't teach them, you know, usage and parts of speech and, uh, you know, conjugation. Right. So they want to they want you to teach it in in context. So, I mean, this is just another example of how right it gets less and less grammar more and more right operant conditioning today through things called like adaptive learning courseware which is basically it's the digital version of bf skinner's teaching machines right but every time right so so this semester when we get our you know our matriculation rate and our attrition rates and our you know the, you know the impetus will be to say that well you know we need get rid of the 98 we won't even bother with that at all and you know we need more courseware in here to condition people better like that's sort of the trajectory and you know, no, again, it's, you can't assume that, that people, that the entire institution is that incompetent. You'd have to assume that they're going in the direction that they want and they're getting the results that they want. See, I, I, you know, I don't want to believe that we have, I, I do believe we have people up there with nefarious purposes. I absolutely believe that. I don't want to believe that. Um, it, it would be kind of easy to think that, okay, because there's so much funding involved based off of pass rates, you know, um, how many how many people you crank out that uh, meet the criteria to graduate and they lower the standards and stuff. It's easy to want to teach people to just get the answer. However, you got to get the answer, some magical way, some magical trick like the lattice math, you know, that my, I watched my kids doing as part of the uh, uh, Common Core. I'm like, what the hell is this? And they tried to explain it to me. I'm like, that's stupid. Do, do you know why 685 times 292 equals this? Well, because if we do this and this and this, it just gives us the number. But they don't understand why. The way we, we learned it, we understood the mechanisms of, of how we derive that number, uh, and they didn't. So um, I, I, could, I could easily see it being maybe a two-part. Maybe the Common Core and the, and the funding is a way to get to motivate the educators to, to push the people through as quickly as possible. And you produce something, uh, a, a person that's not as educated as far as critical thinking skills go. Um, that way they get the funding and then the, whoever's running the show on top gets their little worker bee that's not very educated. And back to the, the literature part, uh, I remember having to diagram sentences. You know, I remember, you know, the, the prefix and the suffix and, and the root word and all that stuff. And, nouns and verbs and everything and when i went to take spanish it was so easy 
to move over into Spanish because all they did was say, well, they structure their sentences with this before this. And it's like, oh, okay, I get it because I understood how our sentences are built. You just rearrange it, right? Um, but if if you don't learn that basic knowledge of how we structure a sentence, then to go on to something new, to learn something new on your own or have a friend teach you is almost impossible. So I don't know. Uh, I, I guess I don't even know what my question was. <laughs> but, uh, oh, no, I guess the funding, the funding issue, do you, do you think the funding has a lot to do with it? Um, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, so I mean, one of the things that you kind of you might kind of touched on a little bit was, like, so the average instructor teacher, right, is not somebody who's like nefariously trying to, at least at least in their mind, right, brainwash or indoctrinate or dumb down. Correct. Right. Okay. Right? They themselves have bought into the same the same pedagogy, the same theories of what education is supposed to be. And so they're like true believers in this system, right? Like, I mean, they're in many ways just as, you know, just as much a victim uh, as, of the system that they're imposing on the students as are those students uh, underneath them themselves, right? Um, and a lot of that ultimately does come down to the funding, right? I mean, we're, we're talking about generations here, right? So, I mean, you know, at this point, right, the, we're talking about funding of, of uh, schools of education in particular, right? So uh, back in the day, they called them normal schools. Uh, so normal schools are the schools where you would go, like they weren't, uh, you weren't research, what are now known as research one universities, like your Ivy League schools, like where they have, uh, you know, the top professors there never teach a class, right? They have assistants that do that and everything. I was going to bring that up to my my stepsister, um, she was, and my sister-in-law are both kind of like almost full-time professional lifetime students, you know, <laughs> forever. Well, my stepsister not, but uh, uh, she's out of that now. But yeah, they, they were saying that they didn't hardly ever see their professor. I'm like, what's that about? You're paying good money and you have some other student teaching you. Yeah. What's up with that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, cause, cause that, because so, you know, the, again, the Ivy league schools, the research one universities, those were set up to, to expand on a particular field of, uh, of research, right. A particular discipline. Right. So you were, you, so the professor's job there is to right uh, discover something or to expand upon or otherwise develop uh, the, the art or discipline that, that he or she uh, is uh, is has has their degree in right and then the normal schools were, were where you would uh, where they trained people to teach uh, in the high schools in the grammar schools etc um, but those were not right I mean so those I mean they're on a totally different uh, tier and at the normal schools is where you would teach what you would get early on would largely have been for the most part he Hegelian philosophies right but also uh, educational psychology, right? And in particular, the, the behavioral method of educational uh, psychology. And I, I you know, I, I look back on um, when I, before I went and got my master's, I actually almost finished a degree to teach uh, secondary ed. Um, I went through the practicum and stuff. And then at, at that point, it just was a lot of extra red tape and stuff. And so they were like, you know, I, I was starting to see you know, some of what I, some of, some of the big picture that I see now and uh, the people at the college said, well, you know, if you come back, you know, we'll, we'll basically, we'll give you an assistantship, right? Like they, you know, well, you can earn a master's here and then maybe you can do a PhD or something. But I, but I remember taking that class and going like, what is, why do I need to know? 
right? Brain science to be a master of my craft and my art, right? Like how does me understanding, right? The stimulus response mechanism in the, in the uh, psychology of the student, right? Like how does that help me understand my craft, be able to explain it and demonstrate it and scaffold it and exercise it along with the students in a way that transmits the information, right? Like perhaps I might pick up a few little tricks about how to basically, you know, somehow trick the student into being more motivated perhaps, but ultimately, right? Like what is going to transmit the knowledge has to do with, with, you know, I'm, I'm, I teach, I'm in the humanities. I'm not a psychologist, right? I mean, like, you know, over the years, I've, I mean, I'm, I'm, I know a lot about it, but I mean, in terms of my specialty, right? I don't need, psychology has nothing to do with classical rhetoric, right? Ultimately, or at least, at least if it does, it's anachronistically so, right? Um, and it's, and the reason why that happened though, is because uh, the reason why education psychology becomes sort of the cornerstone of, of uh, any pedagogy, any, uh, any normal school, any school of education where you're going to uh, trained to be a teacher is has everything to do with uh, funding of, especially from the Rockefeller General Education Board and, and several other Rockefeller foundations, right? And so, uh, to this day, you know, I mean, you know, the Rockefeller Foundation is still right. They still are a huge uh, influence in in uh, you know all things, not just education. Yeah, all uh, things. But uh, but you know, now, nowadays we have you know like Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Um, uh, the Hewlett, uh, the the William William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, and then there's the Ackard Foundation as well. Uh, those are pretty uh, heavily influence uh, education as well. But you know, all they the department is going to be looking for the money, so they're going to hire PhDs that are going to write the types of grants that'll get them the money, and. Yeah the grants are going to tell them what they want them to do. And if you want to get that money back again, well, that's what you're going to, you're going to have to carry out that project. And so, um, you know, that's, that's basically, it sort of trickles down from there. And then you go a couple generations of people being trained in that system and then coming up to that position of, right. The, the department chair who writes the grant. Right. And, you know, and, and so, um, at that point, yeah, it's it's essentially the purse strings that, that sort of steer the steer the chariot. Yeah, and and I seen I actually had a, a nice conversation with the Google AI chat about uh, actually global warming of all things or climate change, and uh, and I actually asked about that. I said, hey, uh, is it possible um, that uh, you know these doctors are messing up their numbers because they want the grant money and they're trying to give them the answers they're looking for? And of course it conceded that, yeah, that's absolutely possible, but that's, that's not happening here. You know, it's not happening here because they have a reputation on the line. Uh, so I'm like, okay, not very smart for AI. Uh, but uh, do, do we see the same kind of thing in private schools as, as we see in, uh, you know, uh, and I'm talking kind of like on the smaller level, like the high school level and stuff like that. Do we see the same kind of stuff going on or. Uh, yeah, that's not something I've, I've dug into too deeply, but I have uh, been in contact with a, a group called Undercover Mothers, and uh, okay. they, um, um, they, they're well. The one, the one person that I talked to, her, her, uh, what she focuses on. I'm, I'm, I'm guessing the, the the whole group largely focuses on this angle, but this, the person I talked to in particular, focused on um, 
basically how the uh, the private school system, you know, we're talking like the elite private schools, like your Hotchkiss, yeah. your Dalton, right? That type of stuff. Um, basically, they, they're just as woke uh, that they, they use all the... Uh, of the adaptive learning type courseware, right? They use the, all the, all the data tracking, data mining. Uh, and one of the institutions that she says sort of, uh, this is a similar phenomena, right? Is, uh, is that it's the accreditation institutions, right? And one that's called the National Association of Independent Schools. And if you want them to accredit you, right? You have to abide by, you know, their tenets and their tenets just happen to be all the same woke ed tech type stuff that you get in the, in the public schools and in the public private charter schools. Um, and so again, you know, with that accreditation, you know, the, attached to that obviously is funding as well. Uh, but in some ways, you know, the way she explained it to me was that it's in some ways it's, it's almost worse because, and this is why they're undercover mothers, because you can't, you have no voting rights. Like they can boot you for anything. If you, if this, if the kids don't, you know, they don't perform, they misbehave, or if mom or dad says something about the curriculum, right, especially on a yeah. stage that makes the school look bad, they'll boot you. And there's no school board where you can vote that that person out and get a new, uh, you know, uh, chair or dean or provost or whatever. Uh, it's basically, this is, if you want to come to this elite school and you want to be able to say that you graduated from it, you do what we say. And, and you know, and what we say is the same stuff that these other schools are doing so that's you know yeah, that's the only thing we have going in our favor in, in public schools is that they force us to pay they force us to pay our tax dollars so they can't refuse that service i mean they can they could try uh they could try saying you have to be vaccinated and i went through the battle in colorado with one of my daughters where i told them um i'll go talk to your um to, to your hire and your hire and your hire but my daughter's not getting vaccinated with all these vaxes a second time because she basically just came to live with us and she didn't have her her shot card or records. So they wanted her to get every single freaking vax again in like a week to go to school. And I was like, uh, no, she's not. And they're like, well, she can't come to school. I was like, yes, she will, because I pay taxes. And and that's what it comes down to. I, I pay for the service. You're going to provide the service. Otherwise, you know what? You cannot charge me, you know, half of my property taxes or more goes to pay for this school. So uh, I was wondering, if, you know, with the private schools, if that was kind of the same. But I guess... They could just boot you, huh? Just, you, you look the wrong way. You got the wrong color hair, whatever. You wear the wrong T-shirt. They could just kick you out, huh? Because, I mean, they don't owe you anything, right? They yeah, no, no. It's use so, your it's, check. Yeah, that's it. I mean, it's it's just like any, you know, I mean, it's a, you think of it like any. Uh, nowadays, the theory is it's a private company. It can do whatever it wants, right? <laughs> you know, it doesn't have to give you. But they still, get, they still get federal grants and stuff, though, from what I understand. Yeah. Um, and, and even, you know, and that's where David Knight talks about this. If you homeschool, people talk about, oh, well, we need to get, uh, you know, credits because we pay the tax money out that goes to the public school, but we don't utilize the public school. So we need that money back. Well, once you give the money and then ask for that allowance back, now they have control over you. So I'm not in favor of having any kind of like a credit for, um, I would say, a reduction in uh, in your property tax, maybe, if you can prove your homeschooling. Uh, but you don't give them the money first because then it's a gift from them back to you. Uh, you know, it's kind of like, you, you know, you take your kid's money and then you give them back a portion as an allowance and then you, you lord it over them. That's what our government does to us, yeah. you know, through force, by the way. Um, and you know what? We're going to run out of time. I, man, this hour went so freaking fast, man. <laughs> um, 
where I had got into one of the first episodes I did here on the Foxhole, which I don't know if you know the theme of it, but the theme is kind of like how there's all these different tentacles working simultaneously together to, you know, to, to work against us basically for tyranny and education, in my opinion, is one of the largest ones, um, the largest things they've used. And I, I believe it's by design. I don't know. Now what you're talking about is more the, more the intricacies of how it works. And, and in your book, you go into the conditioning and kind of the science of it, the science of how they do that. And I'd highly recommend it to anybody. And I'm trying to get through it. I'm just not a very fast reader. I get sleepy when I read. That's just me. Um, but one thing I did notice uh, in doing my research is that once they basically implemented, number one, the income tax, okay, which was a burden on people. And then, uh, then they took the gold out of the money, the precious metals out of our money. And then in, we get this beautiful thing called inflation. So then it degraded your savings. And then, uh, you know, through that process and, and then they break up the nuclear family to where now mom and dad aren't together. You got single moms, single dads. It became very, very, very difficult to, um, to watch your kids, basically. You've got to have daycare. You've got to, oh, we can't wait to get them in kindergarten. Oh, we can't wait to get them in preschool. Oh, pre-K. You know, we got all this stuff. And they get them cradled to grave now. And, and it's because and it's tied very closely to economics. It's, it's tied to breaking up the nuclear family, making it very difficult to live, making it expensive to eat. Uh, and, and I think that that is by design to push them into this school system for as quickly as possible and as long as possible. Would you agree with that? And can you expand on it at all? Yeah. I mean, well, you know, there's a term called uh, in loco parentis, which, you know, yeah. basically when you send your school, your, your children to the school, that basically the, the state is now, they're, they're under their charge. Um, and, you know, uh, also there's a term that's used uh, frequently in, uh, in, in some of these, uh, some of these ed tech companies and at some of these foundations uh and the term is human capital management and actually um you know there's a there's a file that i got from charlotte it's on my database and it's you know it's one of the earlier uh treatises on um uh, program instruction um so it was a showcase of basically skinner's theories of uh using uh, what he called teaching machines and what later becomes adaptive learning courseware to condition mm -hmm. students but that was that that whole series was developed in partnership um with the uh, humro so it's a human resources research organization and so division of the army and one of the things that it focused on was human capital management so i mean basically what they're saying is that right i mean your your children and you know i mean you, you yourself i mean all of us the, the, the way they see us is we are literal human resources we are basically right i mean as much as we are not just the consumer class and the working class and the worker, but we are the product itself, right? And it becomes basically this sort of post-human feedback loop, right? Where, where you basically are a, a gear that basically consumes itself. So who gets to be in charge of that? You know, how do I get to be in charge? You know, <laughs> is, it, is it a legacy thing with families? I, I'm thinking that's probably what it is. You well, know, I well, I mean, what's interesting is, you know, I mean, the, the academic systems as we know them, um, 
you know, I mean, much of the much of the the infrastructure for basically, you know, the Great Reset, what we know is the Great Reset today, the whole uh, roundtable system of NGO global governance, you know, largely comes out of Oxford to the extent that uh, it, it, through through its connections with the, the Rhodes Trust, right? And um, you know, so it's out of the Rhodes Trust that. Uh, and the Rhodes Society that basically, you know, the, the Cecil Rhodes wanted to promote, you know, uh, British imperialism and he wanted to sort of, you know, get the intelligentsia, the colonial powers to sort of, you know, uh, indoctrinate them with Anglophile stuff so they would go back and propagate, you know, British imperialism. Uh, but out of that came something called Milner's Roundtables and then those would later off would, would uh, spawn... Uh, the Royal Institute of International Affairs and the Council on Foreign Relations. And then both of those would be involved in the Paris uh, Peace Treaties, which would set up the League of Nations. Uh, and out of that comes your United Nations. And then post-World War II, right, you have sort of some pred some successors to the CFR and the RIA, and that's your Bilderberg group. And eventually then you get in the 68, you get the Club of Rome. And then in 70, you get the World Economic Forum. In 73, you get Trilateral Commission. But all these are modeled after... Uh, that that Milner style roundtable, which was an extension of this Roach Trust, which was basically, you know, you recruited people through through Oxford. Well, the parallel to that in the United States um, was um, the the Order of Skull and Bones in particular. Right. And I'm going to ask you how that played in the Skull and yeah. Bones. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so Yale, uh, you know, Anthony Sutton. uh According to his research, he, he traces it potentially back to it. De it definitely is uh, the first branch of it was a Germanic society, a Germanic secret society, uh, and he traces it back to potentially the uh, the actual Bavarian Illuminati, right? Which would have came out of Ingolstadt University. Um, but then both of those, right? Both of those systems. So right, your Yale system, which traces back to this. Uh, Vice hops uh, potentially his Illuminati, and then in the in going into the British uh, branch, right? You had the Rhodes Society, but all of that would have the predecessor to that would have been the the, uh, uh, the Invisible College uh, that, that would later uh, spawn the uh, the Royal the uh, uh, Royal Institute or, um, or the Royal Academy, um, and you know so so all three of those sort of. Uh, come together and what, what you have is again right these these various uh, roundtable groups sort of become the uh the the the, acad the the academic societies are sort of the recruiting grounds or the feeding that uh, will then feed those individuals into these positions at these these global NGOs and, and I, uh, I usually have the book back here but a friend of mine Michael Rechtenwald uh, wrote a book called uh, the Great Reset and the Struggle for Liberty I helped them out with it and one of the things that I helped with was there's a chart in there that shows that at the World Economic Forum you have at least 67 members of the WEF who are also concurrent members of all those other yeah one or more of those other roundtables Right. So it illustrates that. Right. It's not just the same model. It's not just the same structure. It's not just has the historical lineage, but right. Like they the, the councils and the steering committees all overlap. And some of them also have concurrent memberships with like the U.N., the World Health Organization, et cetera. But all of the the recruit, the recruit, uh, the, the personnel who fill those positions right, are basically pulled up through these academic institutions that have a very interest getting us back to masonry and Rosicrucianism that can all be traced back to those esoteric societies. Yeah. And, and all these different committees that you talk about, you know, um, it's actually done like that to, to appear to be decentralized, but it's actually not 
Um, it's just for plausible deniability. So if, if there is a group out there that's trying to make global decisions over nations, over all nations on earth or all Western nations on earth, um, they just impose your will on the on the non-Western nations. Right. Uh, but um, they have to break it up into these smaller things. Oh, well, the WHO does this and the World Economic Forum does this. It's actually the same group. They just kind of break it down into little pieces so that it looks decentralized. But it's not. It, it, they are all like you said, they're all uh, they, there's so much overlap there. And, and I don't think people realize that. Um, but uh, anyway, we're we're like, wow, I can't believe we we're already out of time. There was so much more we could talk about. I said, I'll be happy to come back. We can do it another time. Yeah, let's um, questions. Yeah, I would. I'd rather have you get on. Uh, come on. Nights of the storm with us. We have a bigger audience there. Um, but this was a good, you know, a good primer for people to come watch uh, before we do that. Now, we're kind of booked out for the next couple of weeks, but maybe we can do a pre-record when it's good for you. Uh, maybe we can just do a, an additional show throughout the week. Whatever's good for you, brother, you, you let me know and uh, I'll get one of the other hosts to come in with us and we'll we'll have a good old time. But, Sounds uh, good, man. Yeah, what, yeah. whatever works for y'all. I'm, I'm flexible, man. All right. Well, hey, uh, let me jump in here and plug. First, I want to say thanks to Angry Tiger and Little John for being in the chat with me today. Um, uh, Angry Tiger is the one that started Nights of the Storm with me. He's one of the guys. Little John's one of our longtime guys. He's been on there before. He's been on my show before uh, here. Um, but anyway, uh, let me jump in here, and I'm going to show where people can get your book. Uh, let's see. Right here. Tri was it Trine Day, right? Yes, sir. That's where you prefer people to get it because um, I'm sorry. I got mine through Amazon. I didn't know where to get it, so I'm sorry if you – lost out on a couple bucks but uh, i think my yeah, publisher here. Gets all, all the losses on those i think i get i get the same i think <laughs> oh that's good that's good uh but yeah to make it easy for the listeners here just hey just go to the knights of the storm and of course you know the website uh we've got all these people you can listen to but go to the little read tab here and i've added you right here school world order order and it will take you to this website we can purchase this book and it's actually uh i don't know if you're aware but it's on the ebook here as well not ebook uh uh ebook or audiobook huh kindle yeah it's ebook yep yep yeah. it's on a kindle version yeah. so i was gonna get that one but then i realized i don't have a kindle so i've already made that mistake once where i purchased something and couldn't read it oh. <laughs> i'm a paper guy i like to i like to adorn my house with books <laughs> yeah i i have to like highlight things and write things on the side and fold the corners you know that that's me when I read. Oh, you dog ear them? You dog ear yeah. the corners like that? Yeah, yeah. I, I tried doing different. Like, I got these uh, 8 by 10 cards or whatever, but then it just has a bunch of cards, and I'm, it's way too many cards. Yeah, I, I, I'm i loft to do either to my books. I like them to be every once in a while. I'll put like, Christine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't like to. Uh, uh, you know, I'll go back and be like, man, I wish I'd have marked that somewhere because I can't find it. You know. You, you know, funny thing. When I was uh, taking my course, and I still, I need to go back and finish that degree. But I, I started taking uh, um, emergency management and homeland security, and the emergency management, I bought used books. I wanted the usedest book I could find because they already highlighted all the important stuff in there. <laughs> So it was like real easy to like to, if, if I was in a, in a pinch and I'm like, oh, crap, I didn't have time to to read my stuff this week. And I and my lesson is due tomorrow. I could just go through and skim over what someone else highlighted. And it was like bang on, you know, so well, I like Charlotte, you know, is beat. She gave me all her files and her library. And so but I've got all these old documents like I've got Project Best, uh, which is 
it's it's the thing that she leaked that got her uh, fired. But like, yeah, it's got all her notes on it and highlights. So it's like, you know, that's the first thing you zoom in. And, and it's funny because you can look at her highlights and her notes and you can pretty much, especially because I have enough, you know, contextual knowledge to like narrow yeah. things down. Like I can look, scan that like and almost download it just by looking at her notes, yeah. you know, like, like that's how quick it is, yeah. All right. Well, let me get us out of here. Any final thoughts? Uh, where can people find you? Uh, get any websites or anything like that? Schoolworldorder.info, and it's got all my social media on it. Um, so you know, if you go there, you can you can find any anything you need to find as far as my uh, research or my social media. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure. Um, I mean, we could go for a couple hours. Uh, I mean, some some of the meat of it, I really would love to talk about but i don't want to give away the whole book maybe on the nights of the storm we can dig in a little more into the, the actual meat of the conditioning and te uh, techniques they use but yeah. um yep very cool, all right man. ladies and oh sorry go ahead oh i just said very cool much appreciated yeah all right cool beans all right that does it for tonight remember to hold your ground watch the enemy improve the foxhole and always look out for one another until next time You've been watching The Foxhole with Jason Barker.